Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. My guest today, Simon Tam, is an author, musician, and a self-described troublemaker, best known as a bassist in The Slants, the world's first and only all-Asian-American dance rock band. He won unanimous victory at the Supreme Court in the landmark case Mattal versus Tam in 2017 and has received a number of accolades for his activism at the helm of the Slants Foundation, a nonprofit that supports arts and activism in underrepresented communities. His book, Slanted, published in 2019, is the story of his indomitable spirit in the face of fighting for social justice, and was named one of the best books on the Constitution of all time by Book Authority, and won an award for Best Autobiography and Memoir from the Independent Publisher Book Awards. Simon, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you on the show. So I'm just going to kind of get right into it because I'm just fascinated by this and the arch of your career. You were probably one of the most curious people I've ever had on the show. We'll get to that in a minute. So when you started this dance rock band called The Slants, you probably didn't realize that you were also starting an entire movement around freedom of expression and discussions on identity. Your band flips stereotypes with these bombastic live shows and community activism, but it's when you applied to register for a trademark on the band's name, the U.S. government brought you all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States, or rather I should say you fought the U.S. government all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. What was that like? And congrats on your victory, by the way. What was that like, that entire experience? Did you even expect that you would end up in Supreme Court one day? You know... I don't think anyone starts a band thinking that they're going to end up at the Supreme Court one day. <laughs> like, it's just not a thing. You just are kind of doing your own thing, playing rock and roll, releasing albums and touring and doing all the things that a band normally does. But I think as the years progressed, as we continued to fight for the rights to our name, it started dawning on us, especially after we won at the Federal Circuit, which was five years in. And the second highest level of court in our government system that we started realizing, wow, this could go all the way up. And it wasn't something I was like really intending on doing because I will say that every year that we were in the battle, it was just extremely expensive. It's really frustrating and in a lot of ways kind of distracting us from our work. But that being said, the opportunity to make that kind of impact was something that we just couldn't walk away from. Like it was really exciting and all the things all at the same time. I mean, like as kind of like a policy wonk and a geek who watches like courtroom dramas and stuff. I was like, wow, I get to be a part of the change and I get to be a part of creating something at the institutional level of change. And that's just really, really compelling and exciting. In a nutshell, you wanted to trademark the name, the slants, the trademark office, I know I'm going to butcher this, but I'll try my best. The trademark office basically came back and said, no, that's offensive, derogatory based on research that they've done. You came back and said, we'd like to repurpose the term to make it something that can be more empowering. And we have the freedom of speech, freedom of expression behind us. So you appealed, they rejected you, and then there was a whole process and you ended up in the Supreme Court. Did I basically get that right for the most part? <laughs> yeah, more or less. I mean, the thing stretches like over eight years between the time we actually started the process to when it was actually kind of fully realized and completed. And I will say that one of the things that 
was kind of really shocking to me is like, you mentioned the government doing their own research. Well, the kind of research they had was like really questionable because the only thing they really did as far as research goes was look at urbandictionary.com. And then they pulled up a photo of like Miley Cyrus. So it wasn't like they were doing extensive surveying or anything like that. In fact, when we originally appealed, that's what we did. We talked to community leaders. So we had like executive directors of Asian American organizations. We had a, a linguistics expert who was also an editor at the New American Oxford Dictionary. We got independent national surveys done with the scientific method. And all of this, the government considered to not be as good as their sources, which of course was just a wiki joke website, because they kind of wanted to maintain the status quo. And when we noticed that no amount of evidence that we brought to the table would actually influence their decision or sway them in any kind of way, we pivoted and said, hey, maybe this law is actually violating our freedom of expression rights. And that's when the federal court agreed with us and decided to strike the law down as unconstitutional. So it's like a lot of things, like you just keep trying different types of arguments, you see what sticks and what happens at the outset can look very, very different than what happens at the end. Was one of their arguments, or have you heard the argument before, I'm sure you have, where if we allow this term to be used for your band to be trademarked, what's stopping a white supremacist group from using other terms, maybe even the N-word or other terms to use the same argument for freedom of expression, but potentially most likely for different intent. Because a lot of this does come down to intent, right? Yeah. When it comes to language, like language is really about like intention as well as context. Like what's the context of something? And so that's the thing. When we were trying to get a trademark registration, that's kind of a routine process, like getting a copyright for a song or film. And so really the government doesn't factor intention into the equation. They just want to see like, what's the reaction in the marketplace. And so the reality is like every single slur that you could think of, like racially, when it comes to gender or sexual orientation, those terms were all registered on the books already. For example, with slant, that had been a trademark about 800 times until I applied. And then I became the first person in all of US history to be denied a registration for that term. When we asked them why, we were like, a slant obviously means a lot of different things. How come you chose to give us the disparaging or offensive definition when everyone else got it? They said it was because we were too Asian to use the mark. In other words, if you saw our faces on our website and you saw the words, the slants, you couldn't help but think, hey, this is potentially offensive. And so it was kind of a roundabout way of saying anyone could register the slants as long as they're not Asian. And so when it comes to all these other kind of potentially offensive terms, we noticed that there was a kind of a pattern that when it came to communities that were traditionally underrepresented or marginalized by the system, they didn't get the same benefit of the doubt. And yet those tend to be the communities that reappropriate language. When it came to groups outside of those like kind of minority identities, they got the benefit of the doubt. They're like, oh, they probably mean something else. And so you actually saw white supremacist groups holding trademark registrations or even people who were using the same terms in kind of a neutral fashion. And so it became this really complex thing that showed that there was a lot of inconsistency when it came to how words are being used and whether the government said, 
yeah, this one's okay or this one's not okay. And for legal geeks out there, they would call this kind of entire process as unconstitutionally vague. Like you're not sure if you're going to get a benefit or a certain result based on your identity or not. And because the government was so inconsistent with it, that's actually really unconstitutional. Right. And wasn't the original intention or premise behind the name really about taking a different look at things, a different slant on issues, whether it's through your foundation or through your music? Yeah. I mean, for me, I loved the playfulness of the term, you know, like, hey, this term can mean a lot of different things. Yeah. Like you could be looking at a Asian person and calling them a slant. Honestly, I've been called all kinds of things, like pretty much every racial slur under the sun for an Asian. No one's ever used slant because it's kind of an obscure one. And so I was like, okay, like, but I knew what it was like to have slanted eyes in this country, like what it was like to grow up and be like beat up for it and attacked and made fun of for it. So I could understand why people would find it offensive. But then again, I was like, let's look at the bigger picture. Why should it be offensive? The idea of having slanted eyes shouldn't be a kind of a derogatory, embarrassing kind of thing. So what if we changed our relationship with it and made it about empowerment all while, as you mentioned, talking about our slant or perspective on what it's like to be an Asian American. But on top of all that, like I'm a really big music fan and I love puns. And I also in the world of music as a musician, like it's a very common term, like they're slant guitar chords. Guitarists can buy slant guitar amps. In fact, that's what we originally used was like a slanted guitar cabinet. Music slants are, it's just like a part of the art form. And so I thought this is kind of a fun, like insider thing. Although like nobody ever gets that. <laughs> no, no. And I didn't realize, so this fight was eight years. How did you fund it? I know there are a lot of law firms who spend a lot of time in pro bono efforts and especially hotly contested areas like this. Is that pretty much how it happened? Or did you also have to raise money? Well, originally when we started this thing, we got a discount because the attorney that it worked with was really passionate about it. And he's like, you know, I can work with you on the fees and we'll help you out. Just cover the court fees and we'll be okay. Then as we progressed, that moved on to being like a pro bono case as long as I covered the legal expenses. I didn't realize that the legal expenses really were outrageous because like court fees and then like printing at like a federal court level, you'll oftentimes get invoices for thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of dollars. It was just really, really shocking. But I actually walked away from being a full-time musician for a couple of years to take day jobs so that I could pay for the effort. And then at the very, very end, when we got to the Supreme Court, there were a couple of foundations who really aligned with our cause, who believed in freedom of expression that helped us with the fees at the Supreme Court level, which I am just so grateful for. Because like, I don't know how I could have even paid for it at that point. Was the ACLU at all involved in this or with this? Yeah, at both the federal circuit as well as at the Supreme Court. So when we went before the federal court, the ACLU was actually allotted a special like 10 minutes to make arguments before the panel of judges. They also filed briefs in both courts. And so at the end of the day, by the time we got to the Supreme Court, we had about 70 organizations involved in some kind of way. Most of them were involved by filing what's called amicus briefs, basically, um, you know, friend of the court. 
Yeah. So we had a whole bunch of people weighing in. And when we got to the Supreme Court, there were seven other organizations that actually signed on to the ACLU brief. Most of them were like Asian American organizations, especially ones that we worked with over the years to do like anti-racism work or anti-bullying work. And so a lot of folks were just aligned in wanting to make sure certain perspectives were heard by the court. In thinking about the hate, the bigotry, and the violence specifically targeted against Asian Americans over the past several months, what type of work have you been doing and has the foundation been doing to help educate as well as stop the hate? Yeah, I mean, I would say over the last year and a half, really, that's kind of shifted quite a bit. So when we first started entering in like a lockdown phase as a result of COVID, what we saw actually at the outset were there were two kind of major impacts. One, there's obviously the kind of global health pandemic, but we also saw like this pandemic of racism. Like we were one of the first organizations to call that out and saying Asian Americans were actually receiving the brunt end of hatred because of like stereotypes, people using ridiculous phrases like Kung flu and that kind of thing. But at the same time, we also noticed that there was a huge drop off in support for artists. Like there were no PPP loans for performers who were losing their jobs as actors or musicians or that sort of thing. And so we decided to approach that using a kind of a two fold approach. Now, number one, we would issue out grants to artists to help cover their livelihood, but we specifically funded work that was addressing the hate using a compassionate lens, something that encouraged discussion. So works that encourage storytelling and engagement rather than just combating that kind of hatred with anger or like a kind of a backlash. And so we started by funding about a dozen artists at the outset. Then as COVID just continued to take its toll and you know, we started seeing funding coming in other ways like stimulus checks and that kind of thing. So we decided to pivot a bit and partner up with other organizations who are doing the work. And so recently we did a huge fundraising event to raise money for Stop AAPI Hate, which is kind of the lead organization in collecting data, especially around reporting incidents of hate. And then we are also providing support to Asian Americans advancing justice. So they're doing things like free bystander intervention training, de-escalation training, workshops, and that sort of thing. And they also have a really cool like crowdsourcing document that shows resources that are available in every local community across the country in terms of like what people are doing to step up in their own areas, like providing escorts for Asian American elders as they run errands to make sure that they have like witnesses or someone to help out. Everything from that to additional trainings or working with community organizations to like do neighborhood patrols, cleanups, and that sort of thing. It's incredible. And you're right. I mean, this has been going on for more than a year, year and a half. It's just, I do feel like over the last several months, and I know you're never supposed to do this on a podcast, but we're in mid-May right now, but it's definitely reached really an epidemic, almost a crisis level. And is there a reason for that over the last several months, do you think? I think that anytime the world is in a lot of pain, and there's no doubt that like the pandemic's just leveled things. I mean, it's brought out all these inequities to the surface. As people are experiencing turmoil, they're going to lash out in some kind of way. They're going to find someone to blame. And in this case, a lot of folks are blaming 
Asians because there's been this idea that, you know, it was our fault. Even if Asian Americans who have never been to China before, that like it was somehow our fault that we're connected to it. So there's certainly that one, like just people feeling like that's all they can do, directing their rage and frustration at a certain community group, treating us as a scapegoat. The second is there's been a number of movements like where people think it's funny. They're trying to get a reaction by provoking. So there was a trend for a little bit, especially at the outset of May, where there was like hashtags called punch an Asian, where people think it'd be really funny to film someone attacking an Asian person, spitting on them, punching them in the face and so on, and then uploading it to the internet. It's just absolutely repulsive behavior, but people thinking like, this is a form of entertainment, especially as the issues being talked about. So I think there's a combination of those two things. And then on the kind of legal side of things, like there aren't a lot of repercussions for attacking Asians. Like, you know, for the many people that try to report incidents of hate, most of those incidents actually go uninvestigated or ignored by the government. So people see there's not a lot of consequences for that behavior, which is why those of us who are kind of on the ground working on this have been trying to pass legislation to say, like, we need to fund research as to get more data into like the causes, track these incidents, and then also figure out what we need to do on a policy level to ensure that our citizens are actually safe in this country. Do you feel, or at least anecdotally, that law enforcement is more apt to investigate a hate crime that is unrelated to the Asian American community? It might be related to a black or brown community or anti-Semitic or whatnot. Is it that explicit or is it more implicit? I think it's more implicit because there's a lot of people who assume that like Asians aren't really struggling. Like, you know, we got Pew Research that says, oh, Asian Americans are doing quite well economically. They have higher education attainment rates and so on. But most of that data isn't disaggregated. So, you know, when we hear the term Asian, Asian American, we think, oh, that person must be Chinese, Korean, Japanese, and so on. And that kind of obscures the fact that people could be from Nepal or Bhutan or Cambodia or one of these other countries that were there generationally less established. And so it hides the fact that there's actually vast inequities and disparities, even amongst Asian Americans. So that in itself is a really big struggle, which is why I think data is so important. And when you just assume that people are doing okay, like you're going to be less likely to spend time and resources into it because you're like, no, that community is doing fine. Why do we need to waste our resources trying to help them out? But the other thing is that hate crimes in general are like pretty rare in terms of like getting resources for investigation. Like most of the time that label doesn't apply until after a jury convicts and then they make the decision, do we apply additional consequences for it being a hate crime? From a legal perspective, it's very, very difficult to get something labeled as a hate crime or to be like prosecuted as a hate crime because those are kind of tend to be reserved for the most extreme of circumstances. Like fairly recently with the Atlantis shootings that even then as Asian Americans were saying, hey, this was a crime of hate, of passion – on the law enforcement side of things, they were extremely reluctant to do so. And it wasn't until just this week that the prosecutor said, yeah, we're going to go for charging this as a hate crime. Yeah, certainly doesn't help when the police chief refers to the perpetrator as having a bad day. Like, really? I mean, I know he must have been nervous when he said that, but like, that is just vile. I'm sorry. It's just awful. 
I agree. And it's like, when do you like just trust the words of somebody who just outright murdered other people when he's saying, oh, it's because of my sexual addiction or whatever? It's like, if it really was your sexual addiction, why did you choose Asian spas instead of, I don't know, pornography store or strip club, something more explicit? And if it was because this assumption or the stereotype that Asian spas provide sexual services, well, that actually is a racial bias, which you know, I would think would qualify for hate crime. So when I was reading through your bio and your history, which is just so fascinating, I was wondering how you felt about the intersection of using comedy and humor. And there are plenty of very famous, hilariously funny Asian American stand-ups across the gender spectrum who sometimes will use their ethnicity and their background to make jokes. I mean, this is a question, you know, for every group. And, you know, I say this about my own kind of affinity group of American Jews, right? And I'm always kind of mixed. And sometimes it depends on, again, it comes back to intent and context and what's the point behind it. But I'm curious what your thoughts and feelings are. No, I mean, I think it's the same thing. Like, it really is kind of context. The reality is that, like, we should be able to laugh at ourselves. There's like a certain therapeutic effect of just being able to laugh at a joke about ourselves. And I think in terms of like comedians who are Asian American who are doing that, like it's kind of an in-crowd feeling like where we get to make fun of like, I don't know, strict parenting or things like that. It's just kind of like fun and we should be able to have fun. Comedians, I think it's are practicing an art form and art is oftentimes used as kind of a mirror for society. Sometimes it's a distorted mirror or an extreme one just to point out like the ridiculousness that we have when it comes to stereotypes and that kind of thing. I think it's like really important because that kind of thing, irony, satire, wit, it can truly cut through and neuter hate. That being said, like sometimes there are comedians that are a little bit edgy and I'm like, Oh, I don't, (laughs) I don't know if I would say that, but it's okay. Like I, I think it's just as part of the deal when you're having comedy, There are going to be people who will say things that are a little bit more risque or something that may be on the edge. And I personally think that it's great that we have an art form that does that because it, rather than thinking about it being offensive, I like to step back and think, why is it offensive? Why does it make us feel uncomfortable? Like if someone's dropping a bunch of racial slurs, like I'm not a huge fan of that, but at the same time, I'm kind of like the reality is there'd be no such thing as a racial slur if we didn't have a racist society. That's the stuff we need to be talking about. The Everything else is kind of on the surface. We need to be thinking about like, what are the root causes of all that kind of stuff? So, And I think era matters too. Now, I, just for kind of shits and giggles, I went back and I rewatched Eddie Murphy's Delirious and Raw. And I don't know if you ever watched it. And yeah. I'm old <laughs> enough to say that I actually went to see him live at Madison Square Garden and I saw Delirious. And now when you watch it, I'm like cringing. I'm like, it is so, then I remember laughing. I was a teenager, you know, I was like crying. I was laughing so hard. And now I watch it. I'm like, wow, that is some like really misogynistic shit. Like really, really bad. Like not funny, not funny at all, but it was hilarious in the eighties, you know? Yeah. And you know, the thing is like, we can't be using like the lens of 2021 to apply to these kinds of things because the level of awareness is a little bit different then. And I'm like, you know what? 
it's really interesting how our relationship with the same joke can change over time, depending on our level of awareness. I live in Ohio, like the state of Dave Chappelle. And I'm like, I watched Chappelle show and I'm still like, oh, this is like brilliant. He is a genius. Nobody can come close to that guy with genius. And yet I know there are people who feel uncomfortable with it. And I'm like, hey, at the end of the day, as an artist, I'm like, I can respect what he actually did. I'm like, this is, you know, it's comedy that's done with like a a scalpel rather than an axe. It's very, very carefully constructed, but I can see why some people feel uncomfortable with some of those things. And I think that in this day and age, people are reluctant to sit with that discomfort and question why it's uncomfortable. And as a result, would rather just like pretend like it never existed, like, you know, making sure nobody ever sees it, that it doesn't see the light of day. When I'm like, we should be exposing it and saying like, why is this uncomfortable? It should bring forth discussions and we should process that together. Yeah, I think that's beautifully said. And he, Chappelle's an interesting one because he often, before he tells a joke, and it might be related to the Asian community, he'll be like, well, my wife's Asian and I love her. <laughs> my kids are half Asian or biracial, whatever. He'll, he'll say that, right? Almost as a way to like, here's my get out of jail free pass. It's like saying my best friend's black, but it doesn't mean you're not racist. It doesn't mean that what you're saying isn't offensive. And then you've got Ricky Gervais who's like, you know, you might be offended, but it doesn't mean you're right. You know, so it's all, it's just so interesting, the dynamic yeah. that's going and, on. And I think with that kind of disclaimer, Chappelle is also using it as a way to satirize like other people who say those kinds of things. Oh, I once dated an Asian. It's okay. And I'm like, it's great. I can laugh. I could be offended all at the same time. And then I could think, okay, as somebody who's heard those kinds of things, what is my responsibility? What's my role in society? If I'm just sitting here being offended, but I'm not actually doing anything on behalf of the communities that you know I feel offended on behalf of, then I'm part of the problem. Like I need to be an active part of this to a point where, you know what? it actually is just a funny thing and it's okay to laugh at because we've already shifted the power structures that made it uncomfortable to begin with. Yeah. So what about like ordinary, boring, run-of-the-mill, tiny, bald, white guys like me from an allyship standpoint? How do I help? What do I do? How can I become more involved? I think that, you know, for me, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. There's a lot of organizations that focus on direct programming and helping out kind of people who are experiencing immediate harm. And I think that's really critical, particularly in a time like now. But I'm always thinking like, what's the long-term game? How do we actually transform our society? And so for that, I think it requires a multifold approach. One is to actually change the culture. And the second is to change the systems that uphold that culture. And so really when it comes to like allies and coalitions, I'm always like, what can we do to actually transform that? And that means supporting legislative change, supporting people who are actually in power and replacing them with a body that is more representative of the people. And so like voting is, I believe, a very, very key part of this and making sure that we can protect voters' rights. Like we're seeing all kinds of ridiculous legislation being passed, like, you know, Florida, Georgia, Arizona, Texas, like they're trying to restrict voting. Like we're the only <laughs> democracy in the world that actively tries to get people not to vote. And I think that's absolutely horrendous. So it's like dealing with that is going to be a big part of it. And then the second part is like supporting the arts and culture, because I do think that having a more prolific set of arts and having like more diverse stories in our movies and our music and our books and so on, I think that will help shift the culture. I grew up 
in an era where the only representation we had other than Bruce Lee, who obviously is an icon for our community in the eighties, all we had was long duck dong. I mean, that's ridiculous. And it's probably no wonder why I was bullied. Is that 16 candles? 16 candles. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I had to go back to my pop culture from the eighties. Okay. Yeah. John Hughes. (laughs) And, you know, and not long before that we had white actors taping their eyes back and people thinking like, Oh, that that's all right. But as we started seeing more and more representation come about, I think the relationship started changing. It's kind of like if you track the support or lack of support for same-sex marriage in this country, it almost mirrored a cultural shift as well. The overwhelming majority of Americans were opposed to same-sex marriage, but very quickly it flipped and the overwhelming Mm -hmm. majority supported it. And if you look at the same time period, well, that's when you had Will and Grace on TV. That's when you saw more diverse representation. And then people started saying like, I know someone like that. Like I could see myself in these situations. And, you know, we saw greater empathy came about and we also saw legislation being passed right around that same time. So I kind of really believe in this two pronged approach, like changing the system and then the cultures that are affected by it. So I know this kind of goes back to what we talked about before with comedy, but when it comes to culture, so characters like Long Duck Dong, or what about, is there a difference between Long Duck Dong character and Mr. Chow from The Hangover, or is it pretty much the same? I think that- um, I'm just trying to find that line, you know, because I'm sure you laugh too. The Hangover is funny, and that character, the actor is hilarious. He's brilliant. I absolutely agree. And I think like- even characters like Long Duck Dong wouldn't be so bad if it rested in a universe of a whole bunch of other stories and representations that wasn't like, if it's just a singular representation, it can be problematic because all of a sudden it not only like creates a stereotype, but reinforces it. If it's part of a, like a, this pantheon of a lot of different types of representation, I don't think it's so bad anymore. Just like, again, like you see Chappelle show, they embody all kinds of like stereotypical, like black roles, but it's done in a way that, and rests in a universe where there's a lot more representation. So it, it could be used as a way to critique. And I think the hangover could be a part of that. You know, you look at say an old school, I guess in our community, it's old school, like Margaret Cho comedian, like she uses her parents accent. And when I've seen like younger comedians do this, I'm like, why do you got to do, why you got to use the accent? But when I watch her do it, I'm like, oh, she's great. So, you know, we're in a time period where there's going to be a lot of shifting relationships. And a lot of people are just going to say, honestly, it just depends because it's context and intention. And so I think we're going to have a lot of question marks on whether something's appropriate or not. And like my answer, it's not great, but usually is that it just depends on on the situation. Yeah. And it changes fast. I remember I was watching Ted with my 16-year-old daughter. And Ted was actually the Ted 1. Ted 2 is good. Ted 1 was, I think, filmed, what, eight, nine years ago. And even between eight, nine years ago and now, there's like stuff in there that I'm like, holy shit, I can't believe. <laughs> you know. And then I feel badly because I'm laughing. I'm like, should I be laughing? Should I not be laughing? So I think you're right. I, at the end of the day, as long as it creates meaningful conversation. And I also think part of it is, like you said, stopping yourself and questioning, is it right? Is this not right? And I think that's healthy because I don't think even 10 years ago, and I'm a very left-leaning person, I don't even think 10 years ago I would have even stopped myself to say, I don't know if I should be laughing at this. I don't think that's funny. I don't think that's right. So there is already kind of an acknowledgement in my inner self that I'm questioning more. And I think that's really important. Absolutely. And I think like 
we shouldn't like try and eradicate those feelings. You know, again, I think having those questions is a good, healthy thing because it's kind of like questioning eating certain kinds of food. Like, yeah, I shouldn't be eating like fast food, but every once in a while, like indulge in it. And I recognize it. And I say like, is this creating harm for myself? Like, and then I could kind of process and move on like certain types of art and media. It's not always going to be a perfect representation of like every single person, comedy, especially because comedy oftentimes relies on the ridiculous, but it is precisely through processing those feelings that we could think like, okay, we're laughing. Now, what do we do to help change the situation? So it actually just becomes kind of a a mild joke as opposed to like pervasive harm. I'm looking at your background and like your education. And like me, you either have an enormous amount of curiosity coupled with ADD, or you have like a level of neuroplasticity and sponginess to your brain like I've not experienced ever. So you have a background in songwriting, in music, in audio engineering, in philosophy, in business, in marketing, you're a keynote speaker, you're an author, you founded and you run a foundation. What's next for you, dude? Like, that's crazy. Like, you are the Renaissance man. It's incredible. And I say this with awe and respect. I think it's amazing. Oh, well, thank you. I think it's more like I just really love to stay busy. And it probably comes from the art side of things. Like, I like to bring into existence things that I wish would be in our world. And so that's probably why I like starting nonprofits or businesses. Cause I'm like, Oh, it'd be really great if we had like, I don't know, a traditional wonton noodle shop. And that's why a couple of years ago, my sister and I opened one, or it'd be really great to see a nonprofit serving this particular need, which is why I've been in the practice of starting nonprofits. So it's probably that coupled with like curiosity in terms of like what's next. I accidentally wandered into the world of television. So I've been writing scripts and working on a show, uh, which is really weird because like a year ago, I'd never would have imagined being at that point. And I'm really just trying to grow the Slants Foundation, like the nonprofit that we started, because it's really, really exciting right now to be in the middle of like such an opportune time to create social change and to do it in a way that other folks aren't doing. So we're not like duplicating anybody's work and we just get to help either partner up with what they're doing or kind of challenge what they're doing. And on top of that, like we get to launch films and albums and theater productions. And that is just like so cool. Like I get to see, I get to see art being made and that's so exciting. So you don't sleep? I sleep every day, but I do not have kids. So maybe that helps a lot. <laughs> yes. In multiple ways. Right. That's kind of funny. So I forgot to add restaurateur to your, uh, the long laundry list of accomplishments and interests. Where is the noodle shop? Just out of curiosity. Well, unfortunately, it's no longer operating because we had a water main burst open and flooded our dining room and had a protracted battle with the insurance company. But it kind of exists, like the recipes exist as a pop-up in my sister's cafe and restaurant, which is called Either Or in Portland, Oregon. So parts of it live on, but the actual shop we had itself is now closed. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. That's rough. But like you said, at least it lives on through your sister's shop, right? It's all right, because I don't really want to be in the restaurant world anymore anyway. It's really, really difficult and tiring. And, you know, especially, you know, I feel, I really feel for the people who had been in it for the last couple of years, because it's been a really tough time. Yeah, you're right. Running a foundation and writing a TV scripts a lot easier than running a restaurant. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is supposed to be a bad joke. 
are you self-taught in terms of script writing for TV? I mean, that's like very specific and quite challenging. Yeah. I mean, I'm working with a show creator right now, somebody who's like really, really well-versed and experienced in that world. And they actually approached me about creating a TV series, like based on like my life and the band's journey. And I was like, yeah, if you want to create it, go for it. Just let me know if I can answer questions. Essentially, like I wanted to be really hands off, but Mm -hmm. then they, they said they really thought it was important for me to have a role in it. And I was like, I've never written a script before. I don't even know like the format. I've read them because like I do some acting on the side and I'll, you know, dive into that world. But like, I'm like, I don't even know how to like create one. But they said, oh, you wrote a book, you can write this. And so I just started like diving in and just kind of creating it. I started, my my homework is fun because I just get to watch a lot of TV shows and like, oh, that's a really cool scene. How would I create a scene like that? So I just kind of deconstruct other stuff and then get a lot of feedback on the writing itself. So it's been a lot of, I guess, kind of learning on the job. It's humbling. It is good for that neuroplasticity though. And it's like anything else. I mean, I just started a software platform, a SaaS platform, and I had no experience in that. And now anytime I log into anything, which is everything, right, on my phone or on the I realized how many people and how many hours went into building that thing that seems so seamless and easy to me. You sit and watch something on Netflix or a movie, like actually that movie took seven years to make. It was a $100 million production. It employed you know 3,000 people. It was its own company for a while that started up and then shut down. Like People don't realize how much goes into all this. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I just started watching super late to the game, but I just started watching Breaking Bad and I was like, oh, so good. wow, like this is like a lot of these episodes are absolutely perfect. And I was like, just the character development, every word is like so choicely used and it's like watching art and art that I never really engaged in myself for, for like most of my life. Cause you know, I just did music, but now I'm able to appreciate it in a whole different light. I just started watching. I'm very late to this. I started watching Arrested Development. Oh, Arrested Development is fantastic. I can't believe I missed it. But the beauty of it is, is like I get to watch it while everybody else has seen it and like 20 years later. And I think it's because I've been listening to Smartless, which is an amazing podcast with Sean Hayes, Will Arnett, and Jason Bateman. It's an amazing podcast. And because of all the references to Arrested, they're just called Arrested. I'm like, I have to watch this. And it is fucking hilarious it's so good yeah it's so brilliantly written in fact when they relaunched the series like when netflix picked it up i think that the writers were too clever for their own good because they just kept bearing jokes inside jokes that come to fruition like 10 episodes later they actually had to re-edit that season because it was too obscure like it was written too smart yeah right and then they're like okay we need to go dial it back down a notch yeah, yeah. Hollywood loves Hollywood. They love navel gazing, right? They like love that shit. That's exactly right. But it's great. I mean, I awesome show. Listen, Simon, it was so great catching up with you. I am in awe of your success, your activism, your advocacy. I just wish there were like more Simons in the world. So I know you don't have kids, but maybe if you made more kids, there'd be more people like you. Absent that, you are creating more mindsets of allyship and advocacy around very important issues. So for that, I thank you. I'm sure my listeners would be appreciative as well. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for providing the time and space and for your very kind and generous words. 
This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quipkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of companies, organizations, and people who make it their mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing production team, including Lindsay Hand, Dara Cawthron, Julie Strickland, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show and sponsorship opportunities at brandonpurpose.com. Learn more about our host at aaronquicken.com.